Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert. I'm Dan Shepard, and I'm joined by Monica Padman in Abstentia. But worry not, she's a part of this episode. We got to talk to one of our favorite people on planet Earth, Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams is a best-selling author and entrepreneur and a political leader. She's written several books, While Justice Sleeps, Our Time Is Now, Lead from the Outside, and her new book, Stacy's Extraordinary Words, which is her debut children's book based on her experience participating in spelling bees while in elementary school. It's a story about a little girl who learns to persevere in the face of adversity. Please enjoy Stacy Abrams. We are supported by Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Mm. Ooh. Myrtle Beach, I have so much nostalgia. Me too. I did a spring break in Myrtle yes. Beach. Yes. Did you guys used to go there from Georgia? Yeah. Mm. It was a very common beach destination. Ugh. Long sun-drenched days, live music every night, and 60 miles of uninterrupted coastline to enjoy. The beach truly is where your best self comes out. Combine that with the irresistible aroma of fresh seafood, southern classics, and local low country cuisine from over 2,000 restaurants, and you've got yourself the perfect vacation. You belong at the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. That's visitmyrtlebeach.com. We are supported by Ollie. I love Ollie. Yeah, they're delicious, aren't they? Yeah, it's kind of annoying because I want to eat more. Yeah, well, yes, that is the only downside of Ollie's. You want to eat the whole jar. Now, as you all know, I have kids, and that means it's always about them. But look, I need some support too, and that's where Ollie comes in. My mom uses Ollie. She does. Yeah, and she has it out on the kitchen table so she won't forget. Oh, sure. So it's like a permanent decoration. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in the same way, my Ollie sleep aid is on the nightstand next to my bed. So it too is a permanent There you go. So this year I'm doing wellness on my own terms. And so can you with delicious vitamins and supplements from Ollie. Go to Ollie.com, O-L-L-Y.com to discover the sleep, mood, and multivitamin supplements we take every day and get 15% off your first order by using the code SPOTIFY15. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. He's an armchair expert. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm so Hi. good. My name is Dax Randall Shepard, and this is Monica Lily Padman. It's a pleasure to meet you both. I am well aware and a huge fan. Oh, thank you. Us too. Do you know that Monica is a very proud, proud representative of the state of Georgia? We have done our research and we appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have lots of people back home who are going to be very excited this. And I'll say that Monica has monitored your movements with a specific interest. I don't know. She's just a very loud cheerleader for Stacey, which of course. Which everyone is, but. But you in particular, I feel like you've got a, you've got a real like potential captain of your fan club in (laughs) Monica. I am deeply appreciative. Now question, where in Atlanta are you from? Duluth. Gotcha. Grew up there, went to Duluth High School, and my whole family's there. Went to school in Athens. Yep, went to UGA. I went to Spelman, so I'm wholly agnostic about these things. Wait, that sounds like a qualifier. Like, I went to Spelman, so I'm agnostic. Yeah, because there's like a Georgia Tech-UGA feud. Oh, there's a fight. I feel. So she can't really take a side, but we know what side she's on. You're floating above (laughs) it all at Spelman there. 
Well, we don't have sports, so yeah. <laughs> we do. We just we just don't care. So yeah, it makes it a lot easier. I think the school you went to that interests me most. Now I'm going to get into my perverse interest in you. Did, did you love UT? I just have always fantasized about living in Austin. I just anytime I can go there, I leap at the opportunity. It's amazing. I was there 20 years ago, but it was so much fun. And if it weren't in Texas, I probably would have stayed longer. But I knew I had political interest, and I was there when Ann Richards lost to G.W. Bush, and yeah, I was I was good. I most I had it back. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, and what's interesting to me, I'm sure you've observed this weird coincidence or parallel, but the fact that you went to the LBJ school and that LBJ was famously elected as a, a senator through total horse trading with different county seats about the tallies of these elections. Like, it was the most fraudulent election maybe on record was his. Oh, yeah, it was absolutely. So Robert Caro, uh, who has done the compendium on the life of LBJ, his volume on the election is probably one of the most perfect pieces of understanding because this was less voter suppression. It was just straight up fraud. And it was, yeah, I mean, you, there was the whole segregation and Jim Crow took care of the suppression part. So when you got to this election, it was just straight out voter fraud. And he he stole that election and it worked for him. Yeah, and to bring folks up to speed who might not have read those books, I don't know which one I'm on, 28 of 400 maybe. <laughs> but so all these different voting districts have a deadline to turn in. And, and there's all these districts and kind of the, the outer circles from Austin that are just kind of holding their data. And his campaign's calling and going, okay, so we're down by 127. So we need you guys to win by 41,500. And literally the tallies come in all exactly wow. what he needed. It, it's so corrupt. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's means of ascent. So it's the second book in the compendium and Coke Stevenson and the way Robert Kara describes him. And, you know, you've, if you read the first book, you know how scrappy LBJ was and how he was very comfortable with prevarication and with getting what he needed, which is why I find him to be such a fascinating and important political person, because the good that he was able to accomplish, despite the means that he used to get to his positions of power, are instructive. But not instructive as in follow his path, but instructive as in learn how this stuff happened. Just had to clarify because that could get out there. Yeah, it's almost like a reverse tragedy if you think about it. He's like through hook and crook and self-enrichment ends up in this position and then ultimately has some positive impact. It's almost like the reverse of a normal fable, his story. Yeah, so I mean, if you think about the beginning of his story, the the scrappiness, the poverty, the dismal nature, and always the narrative, there are these flashes of kindness, these flashes of humanity. And it's kind of like watching Darth Vader's story if you haven't yeah. watched it. Yeah, if you, have, you know, if you didn't know the end, you just, you're trying to figure out sort of what happened, or maybe Maleficent, something like that. But you've got this person who, as a single soul, contains all of these tensions and is an aggressive and egregious racist who also teaches young Mexican children because he believes that it is just a pox on our society that they would be denied education. He does these things of extraordinary grace, but he was also the architect of continuing segregation years after there might have been an opportunity. 
And then there was the Great Society and trying to end poverty. And I, I, I thank him for that. So I am a huge LBJ fan, but I'm a fan with knowledge, not a fan just because. But to your point about the reverse fable, it's someone who, on balance, his contributions do not negate his terrible actions, but they give context to it in a way that we don't often get to see and understand. Yeah, I love the Darth Vader parallel because, yes, when he's a young rising politician and he's so young f to be in all these rooms, and, and if mm -hmm. I recall, he was, like, very instrumental in the electrification of Texas, which was a, that's a very populist kind of movement and almost a very democratic under the current definition movement. Yeah, and then as he became disillusioned or his star stopped rising at the rate that satiated his ego, he's like, well, fuck it, let's just get loaded. Let's get rich. It's a wild story. I'm so glad you're so up on it. Do you think we can extend any, and I don't know the answer to this, but part of me does read that and think, well, let's be honest, politics was a different game back then. And perhaps there was a feeling of the means justifies the ends or that this is already a, an ugly scrap. I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, has the political arena evolved? Is there a much different general ethos that there wasn't then? I don't think so. Part of the reason political biographies in particular fascinate me and his life and, and Robert Caro's care with telling his life, the reason I find it so fascinating and instructive is that it's different variations on the same theme. That if you think about the story of whether you learned it from Hamilton, the book, or Hamilton, the musical, the internecine fights, the petty bitterness, the willingness to manufacture your outcomes, all of these pieces have always been part of the narrative of power. And that's ultimately what this is a conversation about. And I think in LBJ, you had this man who sort of strode upon the national stage for so long that we get to see the arc of his story. And what we see in the current moment is really the snippets. We get the Instagram version of these arcs as opposed to Robert Caro, 48 years in the writing, you know, sort of life history. Yeah. But I think to your point, the ethos isn't different. It just has evolved to meet the moment and to meet the crises that we, we face. But also it's still driven by the same conversations of ego and power and loss and want and jealousy and narcissism which is why for me, the conversation is always, how do you guard against any of these weaknesses or these seductive attractions? But at the same time, how do you learn from the skills that it took to get these things done, to come from nothing, to build power, to leverage your space, to accomplish your ends? And I have the privilege of serving on the LBJ Foundation Board. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to be on this board is that this is the, the one person in American history for whom the triumph of his success and the tragedy of his flaws played out on a national stage. You've got the civil rights movement, you've got the Great Society, and you've got Vietnam all encapsulated in the same man in a two-decade span. And that, to me, is instructive about what we're seeing today. Knowing that and being a fan and understanding it, do you think we're asking way too much of current politicians or prominent people to be all one thing, to be all good, to not have any of those, you know, it's just impossible. Yeah, people suck. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We make terrible mistakes and we yeah. do petty small things, but we are also grace and 
kindness and we do amazing, terrific things. And to bring in you know, one of the best shows ever was a good place. Michael's character was perfectly emblematic of this conversation that, yes, you can do bad. You can be a bad person. You don't get to forget what you were, but you can be forgiven for what you've done if you were truly, truly repentant and you should have the opportunity for a redemption arc. And that ultimately, if we are doing our jobs well as citizens, we create space for each of those things. Now, there are some things that are so egregious, forgiveness and redemption will never mean that you once again get access, but it doesn't mean that your condemnation has to be permanent. And I think that's the, mm. that's the yeah. tension we're seeing in this whole conversation about who is, who's allowed back in or not. You can come back, but you're going to lose your place and you may have to work really, really, really hard to ever get there again. And you should know that you sacrificed it yourself when you decided that this was the thing you were willing to do. You may be eons in the making before you get back to it, which is not to say you shouldn't work at it. And the point of working for redemption is not that you get to go back to where you were, is that you know you have to earn the respect and the trust and the opportunity again. So if, if I heard you correctly, I think what you just said was Giuliani's got another shot. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, <laughs> that he is one of those people, but the beginning place, the starting point, is that you have to admit who you are and what you've done. And you've got to admit <laughs> yes. it. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think that we're a little safe with that one. Um, <laughs> just given the time horizon. Yeah, just, of the yeah whole. exactly. <laughs> Apocalypse is nigh. So there you go. I tend to agree with you. So let's assume that kind of the corruption of power is a constant. And I wonder if what's really evolved is transparency and access and how much harder it is to keep a secret in 2021 than it was in, in 1940. Would you agree that that's a huge element of all this evolution? Oh, absolutely. I think there are three pieces. There's the transparency. There's also the fracturing of the source of information. Monica, I don't know how old you are, but Dax, I think- 34. You and, and Dax, how old are you? We're the same age, virtually, you and I. There you go. I thought so. So if you think about it, like we grew up, there were four sources of information on television. You, it was ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS if you watched the news hour. That was it. Everyone could take that information in and do with it what they will, but we all got the same information at the same time every single day. And it was pretty homogenized even yes. within the three, yeah. Exactly. And so yeah. we had a common story. And if you go back to the 1940s or even back to you know, the inception of the country, for, for so long, there was a single source or at least a contained homogenous source of information. And what we have seen in the 21st century is this fracturing of not just our information, but fracturing of what constitutes truth. And so if you're in politics, it's created two dynamics. One is that everyone knows something, but everyone also thinks they know everything. And yeah. <laughs> it's hard to represent people when they all have a different story they're, they're telling themselves about you, and they've got someone who tells them that story's right. But then the other piece is that there's no privacy for compromise. There's no privacy for contrition. You don't get to make a mistake, apologize, and try to fix it because everyone's going to know and everyone's going to be able to information and attribute motive to it. And if you want to do good, if you want to work with someone else, God help you if someone finds out that you're talking to someone you're not supposed to talk to because then all of the conspiracies been out again. And so politics in this day and age, yeah, it's, it's hard to be anything but pure because everyone is going to see deviation as a reinforcement of conspiracy and they've got enough information, be it true or false, to validate their position. 
I'd imagine too, like you're also battling another element of this, which is when someone has a transgression, you're not actually even evaluating the transgression as much as you're filing it immediately into your broader narrative that Democrats are evil or Republicans are evil. So, so now this transgression, which you've now conflated or married with this broader story you're telling, does have the weight of good and evil, and it does then seem unforgivable. Exactly. That's precisely and well put. Thank you. A compliment from you I'll take. I would maybe suggest that I, we watched this great documentary. You probably saw it too. It was on Netflix about social media. Oh, The Social Dilemma? Yes. Yeah. And the conclusion mm-hmm. was it's both utopia and dystopia, which I, which I yes. tend to agree with. I, I hate the binary. So we're very focused on the problem of it currently, which is, yeah, no one has a shared set of data or shared story. And that makes compromise really hard. But then the other side of it is there's just increased transparency and, and it is harder to graph the populace, I'd say. So it's probably both things. Would you agree? Yeah, I think it's both things. And I, w- I would say that we have to remember that within those two poles of existence, people have varying degrees of access. So if you live in communities where broadband, much like rural electrification back in the 1920s, is still a myth, then you're still getting your information. Now, the question is, you're still stuck in a bubble where your information is coming from you know, either a liberal media or a conservative media that bought your local paper or owned your local radio station that's telling you the only truth they're going to let you hear. And if you don't have either the will or the capacity to venture out to find more information, you might be stuck somewhere closer to dystopia than utopia than you'd like. But at the same time, if you're young and nimble and you've learned how to navigate these spaces and you've had the benefit of an education that's given you the skills to sift, then you get closer to a utopia because you actually can figure out what all this means. The challenge is that we all exist in different parts of our lives somewhere on that spectrum, and we're not always aware of where we are on the spectrum. We all think we're here, and you might be living in the bad place, and you think you're great, (laughs) and we don't know. And that's where the danger comes in, and that's where political power can be so effective and so destructive because it has the ability to shape where you think you are and convince you of what's happening to you without you ever realizing, no, that's not actually what was going on because you don't realize where you are on that continuum. Yeah, I say this all the time, but like I most certainly could predict my wife's behavior much better than she could predict her own behavior in any given situation. And likewise, she could predict mine. Like our general overinflated sense of how we understand ourselves is quite dangerous. Yeah, it's a very large bastardization of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Like the presence of light means you can't actually know what you're seeing. And so we can't see ourselves because we've got all of the content that we think we have. And we're always going to confuse ourselves about what it is because we're going to give ourselves the benefit of way too much doubt And we're going to condemn ourselves way too often for things that nobody else cares about. But an external person can see you and give you both grace and mercy in the same moment. But you have to trust that person's observations. And because of the fracturing, we don't always do that. Yeah. Okay, so what you and I share is... I'll call it for myself, a kink for words. I always have had a kink for words. Really, really <laughs> at different ages. I'm probably not going to use that language. But I, go ahead. You're not, but I got to make it spicy or everyone will shut it off. I'll handle the spice. You handle the knowledge. <laughs> Mine flourished in junior high and it was all oral because I'm dyslexic. So I couldn't spell any one of these words, but I don't think until I was reading your book, or learning your history that I to force myself to recognize why I had this predilection towards them is that I felt pretty low class. 
And I also felt dumb in school. So this little verbal ability I had, I felt like elevated my status, but weirdly socioeconomically and just educationally. Like it was a very status-driven thing for me. I'm curious if you think you know the roots of your, you're not going to call it a kink, but your love for words. <laughs> it's not similar in the driver, but similar in the approach. So you know, my family working class poor. It even begins with how my mom described us. We had no money. My dad was a shipyard worker who barely scraped by. My mom was a college librarian who made less sometimes than the janitor who cleaned the college. And they had way too many kids. So there were six of us. So my parents, we were working class poor or just real poor. But my mother would call us the genteel poor. Uh, She would say, (laughs) we had no money, but we read books and we watched PBS. And so even then, there was a status to the fact that we were bibliophiles, that we loved language that we read, that when we went out for a weekend, my parents you know, would take us all to the library. And that was a big deal. We read voraciously. And it was both status. I don't think we internalized it in that way, but it was important to us that we read because my mom wanted us to understand that we could be anything we wanted. We could be in any world we wanted if we read. But it was also a way to frame who we were and how we engaged. And my dad, who is dyslexic, both my parents grew up in Mississippi, and my dad grew up dyslexic in segregated Mississippi schools. Sounds like he started on the 50-yard line. Yeah, of some of, <laughs> of somebody else's field. Uh, so dad, they basically told him he was stupid. And I'm, I'm sure you had a similar experience where people dismissed his intelligence, his native intelligence, because he couldn't read. And they didn't have the capacity for diagnosis. And then you layer on top of that the racism that he was already pervasive. And so my father used to memorize everything. He never missed a day of school so he could memorize everything in class. But because of that, my dad is this amazing storyteller. And I grew up not only loving words for from reading, I grew up loving words because my dad would tell these amazing, fantastical stories. And for me, the combination of my mother's high literacy and my dad's just volubility and ability to to weave these worlds. Words and reading for me were both an escape, but they were also a validation of who I was and what I could become. And that's never left me. Yeah, I would imagine too, like, I mean, look, Atlanta's better than a lot of places, which is probably sad in itself, but just context. I'm from Detroit and I'd go down to Atlanta and I would always look around and go like, If I was black, I'd be on the first fucking train to Atlanta if I lived in Detroit. there's I see middle-class black people. I see professionals. I see all kinds of things I didn't see in Detroit. And yet, even in Atlanta, where it's probably as good as it gets at that time, unless you enter something that's objective, like a spelling bee, there's no true middle finger you can give to shake this stereotype, I want to say something more specific than that. But yes, the stereotype. I wonder if it was like, oh, no, this is a place that's objective. Your biases aside, I'm going to spell this word correctly or not. Oh, so I grew up in Mississippi. So when I was in second grade, I was in Gulfport, Mississippi. That's worse than Detroit. Never mind. I take back everything I just said. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there too. And I thought I'd get the fuck out of here if I was black. (laughs) So I would agree that Atlanta was a nirvana compared to how we grew up. Yeah, I grew up on 2020 South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. So when I was in the spelling bee. But your point is, it was exactly that. And not not in a conscious way. I mean, I'm, I'm in second grade, but... 
I learned later that one of the challenges was I was, so I was in first grade. I learned to read when I was really, really young. I was a very aggressive reader, loved words. So when I got to first grade, I was actually fairly advanced. They recommended that I move to second grade, but they held me back because they were waiting for two young white girls to catch up with me because they didn't want me to be the only one who got advanced. And the only black teacher at the school called my parents and said they were supposed to move Stacy to second grade and they haven't. You need to find out what's going on. And so it was my parents' intercession that led me to being being moved to second grade. And, you know, I didn't know that when I was there. I just knew one day the principal came and pulled me out of class. And I'm like, I know I said something inappropriate about Miss Kimberg, my first grade teacher, because I didn't like her. God rest her soul. She's probably a perfectly lovely person, but that was a bad day for me in class. She and, had her own drama, <laughs> I'm sure. Exactly. And so I just remember I did something that was impolite. And the next thing I know, Miss Holquist, the principal, is coming to get me. And I'm like, oh, God. And then she takes me outside. And I probably where you grew up in Duluth, Monica, you guys had trailers mm-hmm. uh, at your school. So, Many. So second graders were in trailers. She takes me out of the school building, out back. Now, I have oh. no idea what's happening. <laughs> and I am yeah. following this woman out back. And I'm like, I am going to die. I don't know what, or I'm going to be beaten with an inch of my life. I will apologize. Uh, Please let me, let me go back. And then she takes me to this trailer, and I've never seen these trailers before. So I'm like, oh, they're going to bury my body out here or something. <laughs> <laughs> and she knocks on the door, and the door opens. And out steps this woman who, in the stappled sunlight of Gulfport, Mississippi, looks like an angel because I'm not in trouble. And she welcomes me, and that's Miss Blakely, my second grade teacher. And she's the one who got me into spelling bees and really let me sort of integrate myself into the class because I was different, because I was quiet, because I was a little black girl who had been moved and other kids hadn't. And she knew that words made me happy. So she would let me read when all the kids would go out to recess and I didn't want to go and play. She would let me sit in the classroom and let me stay in the trailer and read. And that to me just, it gave me comfort again. And as for you, when words are your comfort, anytime you can spend time with them is a great thing. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Are there some fantastic concerts coming to your city this summer? Mine too. In fact, Anderson Pack's playing at the Hollywood Bowl. I can't wait for it. Ooh, that's exciting. If you want to be sure to see your favorite artist, you need to jump on it right away. I've already DM'd him saying, yes, I got to be in that front row. When you want the best, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. It's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. So what's the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Got your eye on a rock star candidate? ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature lets you cut the line. Once you review ZipRecruiter's list of the most qualified candidates for your job, you can easily invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We are supported by BetterHelp. Listen, I understand that sometimes you want to keep things to yourself, process your emotions in your own time. 
But if you keep everything bottled up, it can have some serious consequences. I have therapy on Saturday. I'm really looking forward to it. I had therapy this morning. Yeah, you did. Yeah, and it put me in the greatest mood. We had a long, big day, and I just felt much better for having Because you were, some... not to out you, you were a little grumpy going in. I was. I was. I was to <laughs> be specific. and I received some texts Yeah, morning. I was locked out of my therapy setting, <laughs> which is this attic. <laughs> <sighs> But then you felt much better after. I felt much better. And I even made some apologies. Um, Talking things out can be so helpful. And if you want a safe space for that conversation, I recommend therapy. Check out BetterHelp if you've been thinking of trying therapy. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for any reason for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Dax today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Dax. We are supported by Squarespace. Guys, we have a Squarespace website that's just gorgeous. That Wobby Wob, you uh, you built that yourself using all the templates, yeah? I sure did. Yeah. Easy peasy? So easy. The best part about Squarespace is it's an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. You can get discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools, and you can choose from professionally curated layouts and styling options with Squarespace Blueprint. Plus, you can kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with the code DAX. It's probably hard for you to parse out, but what was the driving factor for wanting to be alone at recess? Or is it a multitude of reasons? I was close to shy. I was particular. I was awkward. I was mm. new. I was scared. I'd just been dropped into this new space. And there were some mean kids who questioned whether I should be there, who didn't like my skin tone. And I found that it's much easier not to get into fights when you're by yourself. <laughs> so I stayed in the class. <laughs> I used to fight my brother about 12 hours of the day. And, yeah. and, and they'd always say, well, you can't fight yourself. So clearly you're both. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of think that at that age and being very different, I feel like there's one of two options. You either decide to be like everybody at like assimilate as much as you can, which is what I did, or decide you're you and go in that kind of like go in that direction. <laughs> and it's and gonna be a lonely of, road. And it might be lonely, but you're you at least. Yeah, that takes a ton of conviction at that age. We were just watching Hassan Minaj. I don't know if you know him or yeah. not, but we were yeah. watching his stand up in this like revelation Monica had leaving the theater was like so beautiful to watch, but she was like, I just so impressed that that dude never ran from being Desse and just was like, I'm fucking Desse and it's a thing and it panned out. Like and the just, opposite of what I was, I was like, oh my God, no one can even know. I can't have any food in my lunch that's different. Like, and yeah. he just embraced it and it's worked out. And I think that's a good lesson. I mean, for me, I, so I have an older sister who is three years older. And I remember the first day I was in second grade and I had to go outside with the class, but I was sitting by myself on the, like on the concrete. And Andrea like comes running over because she was in PE in the same field. And she was like, what are you doing out here? 
Like, she thought I was in trouble. She was going to try to sneak me back in. So I didn't and I'm like, no, I, I go to class out here now. She's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I, I vaguely understood what was going on. I could just say, <laughs> I'm in Miss Blakesley's class now, and I'm okay. And so she went, she just, she walked me back over to the class to make sure I wasn't lying. And because she's a very protective older <laughs> sister. But, like, she was the familiar face I had. And it was this moment, I didn't realize how scared I was until I saw her. Because I, I remember just being so happy to see her. Yeah. And for me, it, because my family, were so very close. They're, they're six kids, 12 years between the oldest and the youngest. And my parents were so intentional about, not in an externalized way, but they told us to be ourselves. They were always encouraging us to read and to think. And, to, you know, they, they were strict too, but we never had to make the choice to be different because we just were. We were so different than the other kids on our street I think yeah. for me, it was, it, was a, it was less a choice and more just a continuation of difference. But what was difficult was navigating how hard that difference could be when you couldn't articulate it and when it caused anger and not just irritation. That was the place where I wanted to assimilate. I wanted to be like them. And we were just so different because we didn't have the money I didn't look like them. We didn't have the resources for it. And even the way I spoke, I was too weird to even fit in because my words were different. You were above everyone else. I, I, I was just... I, I'll look, I say was, that. You don't have to say it, but that's what was... I was yeah. in a little pocket universe, put it that way. <laughs> so did you change the name of Jake to protect his anonymity or do we keep it Jake? Okay. It was not Jake. And okay. Jake is a composite of two or three kids. Okay. Who's Jake? Okay, so I'll bring up to speed. So Stacy, she's written a ton of books, which is its own interesting, could be a two-hour interview, because I don't know that everyone would know that you write mm -hmm. fiction and you've written fiction for decades. But she has a children's book out, Stacy's Extraordinary Words, which is about her first fall in love with words and then ultimately compete in a spelling bee. Mm. And then Jake is the now I know all-encompassing kind of bully that was oh, in the mix. So that's sure. who Jake is. I believe in Jake's redemption, so I'm not going to name him. So. <laughs> there we go. It's interesting because I'm reading it with my own, all my baggage, all my trapped in my own perspective. And I'm imagining reading it to my daughter who I'm, pretty certain that the oldest one is, is suffering from some version of what I have. The younger one is like you are my wife, just like a fucking wordsmith can spell everything already, learn to read in two seconds. So I'm reading it going like, oh my God, a spelling bee would be my absolute like oh. carry moment where you dump pig's blood on me <laughs> at the prom. Oh. Like, <laughs> But then I'm, I'm actually seeing though, I'm seeing what it is for you. And then of course, just thinking of what my little cornerstones were. And I think it's more about that for me. Like, my, And it's what I try to tell my older daughter, which is like, be calm, relax, be patient. Something's gonna reveal itself from this mm -hmm. as it did for me. And it sounds like for your father. But the real message for me that transcends the actual, what your book is, is like, Find your cornerstone, exactly. find that thing, find that thing that gives you confidence and just bet everything on that exactly. thing. And you can build a whole identity out of that. Exactly. And then it's going to be a safety blanket and a respite, but it's not going to save you from harm, but it's a safe place to go when harm finds you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so many ways that story is evolving 
in our pop culture. A couple examples I'll give you. We interview a lot of musicians, and I'm so impressed that the current crop of popular pop stars is very vocal about their mental issues, about the loneliness of being on the road, about the ego that happens. Previous rock stars didn't talk about this. They were just raging addicts in mm -hmm. place of that. So, like, yeah. that's an evolution that I think is really cool. And I also think, like, story-wise, both the people that are now telling stories, yourself included, that's a huge movement forward. And then also, they're not all victory stories, which, thank fucking God, because... Who's going to take their first swing at bat and hit a grand slam? It's just yeah. not what happens. So I just want to applaud you that, the, you know, not a spoiler alert, you don't win the fucking spelling bee. The dickhead does. Jake? <laughs> Jake wins. Oh, He's good. No. Guy's good. You can't take it away from him. He's a good speller. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I do just like the shift in the stories we're telling kids, which is more often than not, it's failure. And again, what defines you is how you respond to it. So is that a conscious decision or you're just like, no, I'm just going to tell my real story? Well, I told my real story, but part of it is because... I know that story doesn't get told often enough and certainly not young enough. One of the deeply biographical parts of it is that at the end, when I don't get the word right, you know, my mom gives me this piece of candy and it's yellow, which mattered to me so much because it was yellow lifesavers, uh, but I couldn't use the proper uh, trademark. Yes. I couldn't do the trademark, but it was a yellow lifesaver. And it was because you know, my mom has six children and she knew my favorite color was yellow. And so she gave me this yellow piece of candy just to like remind me that it was okay because you know I built it up in my head so much that when I didn't win I mean Monica your reaction was exactly my reaction like this should be my triumphant moment and I'd read mm -hmm. you know all of these tales of daring do and you do this thing and you vanquish the enemy and it just didn't work out that way and plus mm -hmm. I was wrong in public <laughs> like that Ooh. also yeah. and so part of the goal for me was to not only tell the story, but to be honest about it. To be honest that, yeah, it hurts and you want to quit and it doesn't feel good, but you've got to keep trying this stuff because that's one, how you get better. But also I learned, I learned, like I have never misspelled the word chocolate ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the South. Who knew chocolate had a second O in it? Like, no one has ever said chocolate. Like even even the prissy people call it chocolate. Somebody said, "Well, didn't you see it on a candy bar?" I'm like, "Who reads the label on a candy bar? You see Hershey's and you go." Like, yeah, you know? that's right. And I try this in my nonfiction and even in my fiction. I know antiheroes are the the sort of cause celeb right now, but I like flawed heroes who have stumbled and who don't pretend the stumbles didn't matter. Plus, I've been really good at losing for a very long time. I was going to bring that up gracefully. It's but, okay. <laughs> uh, no, I fucking love it. I, one of the things we say on this show often, because I've been in AA for 17 years, mm -hmm. and so I listen to dudes share every week about the many ways they fucked up that week. And I identify so much, and I learn so much from that. I don't ever learn something from somebody who tells a story of being vindicated. <laughs> it's just not how I personally learn. And I don't think you can have winner as a character, but you can have not quit as a character. Exactly. Like, that's character. Uh, a winner is a, is a label that's going to disappear eventually, even if you're Mike Tyson. So... I think there's just so much value in that. And, and, and one of the things I'm really blown away with you in particular is that you were in the Georgia House of Representatives. You were the minority leader. 
You had a gubernatorial run bid that did not go your way for many reasons we touched on in the LBJ primer. But your opponent, yeah, just in a nutshell, your opponent who was Secretary of the State, which is what a conflict of interest, had purged 373,000 voters or maybe more 673,000 the year before. There would be part of me, if I were you, would be like, well, I got to do it again because I got to do it in a fair but your decision to go like, okay, you know what? I'm going to attack this from a different Pivot. angle. I don't know. That's huge. I, I find more inspiration in that decision because my ego would have been driving that ship. So the night of the election, so we go out, we do the first speech where I say, look, we're not going to concede or declare victory because so many irregularities have happened that the Associated Press is refusing to call this race. But here's what I promise. I told you. If I ran, I was going to make sure your votes counted. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on getting your votes counted. For the next 10 days, we poured a lot of money into sending people out to make sure people's votes got counted. Lawsuits, but also knocking on doors, helping people fix their ballots. It's called curing. So they were making sure their ballots were counted. But the the very first morning after that night, I sat there at this uh, dining room table in a hotel room with my campaign team, my campaign manager, our uh, campaign chair, and our lawyer, and we started talking through the options. And there was this moment where you know, they said, you know, we can file a contest depending on how this turns out. And here are the rules. And I honestly stopped the conversation because I said, look, if what we think happened happened, if we think that this system failed these voters in so many ways, the minute I contest this election to make myself the victor, I've lost because I don't know if it would work, but I know trying it makes this about me and not about what I said it was about. Mm. If my becoming governor is so important to me that I'm willing to basically game the system, then what am I doing here? Well, can I add, you're going to spend all your energy and all your resources and all of your momentum for the next year and a half on actually not changing the yeah. system. It'll just exactly. be changing the outcome of that. Yeah, exactly. You're probably too humble to say this, but but again, purge 670,000 voters in the, in the election was decided by 50,000 voters. So just oh, yeah. that's a very relevant. I mean, you probably had a legit case. Yes, there were sufficient irregularities that it could have happened. But to your point, the other piece of it for me was I've lost before. At the time, I was 44, going to be 45 that year. Okay, this is the thing I want. This is something I wanted to do. But my responsibility is to remember why did I want it? Did I want the title? And to, you, to your point about winner, like winner is a title. Issue is what do you do? And what can I do if this is the way I do it? But my other responsibility was this sucks. And this is a terrible system that hurt a lot of people who do not know that they have the right to be heard. And what I talk about in Stacey's Extraordinary Words is really what I believe, which is that sometimes you've got to speak up not for yourself, but you've got to speak up for other people. Because as, as bad as I may have felt with Jake, there are others who had no recourse. I mean, to you, Monica, had no sense that they had the right to be different. And yeah. so who's going to talk for them? Who's going to speak up for them? And for me, the work I've done since 2018 has been okay, most of you aren't going to be able to raise enough money to file a suit because someone at your polling place gave you the wrong information and sent you home and didn't let you vote. But I can do something about that. And I can use my words. I can use my capacity. And if I mean what I say, these are the moments where you learn it. And, and I guess, Dax, to, to kind of wrap it all together, 
it's going back to that beginning conversation about politicians. It's, you got to choose. This is a choice. Like every time you face these challenges of siblings who, who are in recovery and every day is a choice, there's never a cure. There's never an end. You are always making a choice about who you intend to be. Yeah, there's no vaccination yet, sadly. Yeah, no hydrochloroquine or enzymectin <laughs> for it. <laughs> I am on some equine tablets, there though, you go. and they seem to be helping. <laughs> we have to choose, and I want to be the person who chooses the right thing and who chooses to do the thing that you're supposed to do. I'm going to make bad choices, and I'm going to stumble and fail, and I'm going to try to justify my bad choices to myself, but I try my best to be the person I want to be. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Mm. Ooh. Myrtle Beach, I have so much nostalgia. Me too. I did a spring break in Myrtle yes. Beach. Yes. Did you guys used to go there from Georgia? Yeah. It mm. was a very common beach destination. Ugh. Long sun-drenched days, live music every night, and 60 miles of uninterrupted coastline to enjoy. The beach truly is where your best self comes out. Combine that with the irresistible aroma of fresh seafood, southern classics, and local low country cuisine from over 2,000 restaurants, and you've got yourself the perfect vacation. You belong at the beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. That's visitmyrtlebeach.com. We are supported by Mint Mobile. It's time to stop putting it off. Get your spring cleaning done. And I'm not just talking about your house. Now is a great time to look through your finances and see where you could save. Like, how much are you spending on your phone plan? Because if you're not using Mint Mobile, you might be overpaying. Right now, Mint Mobile has unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. Think about what you could... Buy with the saved money. Listen, if you switch to Mint Mobile within a few months, you could get yourself a gorgeous pair of Jordies. That's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Check change phone plan off your to-do list and switch to Mint Mobile. You can get plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash DAX. That's mintmobile.com slash DAX. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I do think one part of your story that's so moving, I think it's what sort of swept everyone away a little bit, is it ended up working out the way it was supposed to. Yeah, you didn't win the race, but ultimately you did much more than that. And now you're known in a much bigger and better way than you probably would have been otherwise. And it's good to see like failure can lead to major success that you had no idea was oh. even on the path. We've talked about that with this show a lot. Like 
I didn't come here to be a podcaster to LA. <laughs> like that was not even a thing. And then slowly you find, you just find what you're meant to do. If you're lucky. If you're lucky and yeah. if you let yourself. Yeah. And, and sometimes it, you stumble into it. Like I did not wake up and think, I want to run this massive voter rights. And I wanted to be governor. Like the night before, I wanted to be governor. Yeah. yeah. In that 10 days, I'm like, hmm, guy in charge of counting the votes is probably going to win. So I'm going to go through the stages of grief. I'm going to spend a lot of time with anger because anger was a lot of fun and very cathartic. But then what am I going to do next? And so, yes, I created Fair Fight and then Fair Count and, and Seep. And each of the things I created, I didn't know they were going to work. And I think yeah. that's the other part of it. I mean, Dax, you said you pick your thing, you pick your cornerstone. Mm -hmm. And if you pick the right cornerstone, what you find is that you can use it again and again. And it can, it can help you even when you don't know it, because I didn't know that it was going to work. I had a theory, but... My title when I was in the legislature, when I got elected to leadership, I was minority leader. Literally, it's in my title, you are going to lose. <laughs> you are the leader of the loser. I used to tease my calculus. I'm like, look, I have neither carrot nor stick that I can offer you. My job is to lose well. I don't have enough votes to do anything. And you get a lot of practice that way. Like, okay, I'm going to lose. Even when I ran, I told them, I've been a minority for a very long time. I am really good at it. I embody this title. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay, so you're going to hate this. Monica hates this about me. But I do force myself at all times to really try to put on the hat of the other side so I can emotionally understand what's going sure. on. And these are going to be very false equivalencies. But I, I did force myself to imagine that we found out all white nationalists worked midnights. Okay? Mm -hmm. They sleep during the day, white nationalists. <laughs> So I want polling stations open for white nationalists at 10 p.m. so that their vote gets counted. I wonder if I'd be on board for that. Total false equivalence. You can't compare white nationalists to minority voters. But we do recognize that when you protect voters' rights, you're largely giving franchise to minority voters. Or most generally, they're disproportionately excluding minority voters. So if I force myself to think of that, I'm very opposed to white nationalists voting would you, how am I saying this? I'm, uh, you're on your own. Uh, yeah, I'm really, yeah, I'm on a scary position. You? Yeah, a little bit. I want you to, I want to, <laughs> I want to know, like, would you fight to protect a group of voters that you d despise? Yes, okay. because I believe that the selections we make in the voting booth are partisan. They are our prerogative. We vote our values or lack thereof. But mm -hmm. the election <laughs> process, the elections are nonpartisan. The process has to work for everyone. And you want to make the process so that it allows the most disadvantaged person viable access to it. And so that is why you want to make voting not happen on Tuesday in November from nine to five. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. It privileges one very specific community and leaves all these other people out. So you expand it to allow as many people as possible the ability to use the rights they are granted by virtue of their citizenship. I may not like what you do with your citizenship, but my responsibility is to defend it. And when I first launched Fair Fight, I would tell people the focus was on my election. There was a Republican here in my state who had to have the same election run three different times because the same broken system that hurt all of these other people hurt him too. And the thing is, when you break democracy, you may target me because I'm a woman of color. You may target me because... I don't vote the way you like it, but you break it for everybody else. 
And it may take a minute, but yeah, if I truly believe in what I'm doing, yes, I'm going to make certain that every person who is entitled to vote gets to vote. But then my partisan side is going to be that I'm going to do my damnedest to make sure that people who share my values actually succeed once you go and vote. So I have a very ACLU position on it, which is like democracy has to be above what we individually identify Absolutely. with party-wise. Because we're fickle. I mean, the thing is, we're, we're fickle humans and we are going to change our minds and our values and priorities are going to shift. And if the system is designed to give primacy to a certain set of values, then it's not democracy. Your job is to find as many people who share your values as possible to participate, which is why I do the other stuff I do. But the system itself should be neutral as to what you're going to say or think when you get inside. Yeah, it's it's a real hard argument when you're on the other side to support voter suppression. <laughs> like it's, I, I don't know how they, <laughs> they, they I don't know what argument you mount. Okay, I just wanted to, I know your time is valuable, but one thing I just wanted to applaud, and it's in keeping with the other things I've been impressed with you about, is I read your Forbes article about being in debt. Yes. And I found this to be so brave for many, many reasons. But first and foremost, you're just in a situation where as running for governor, you now have to disclose all your financial mm -hmm. information. So it just starts with that, like, oh, here we go. I'm going to have to disclose all this. And then I love that you just took control of it and you told the story because I have to imagine that type of conversation publicly at least is ripe for deep humiliation for all these reasons. The fact that even, even knowing your own history that you're bringing into it, that your mom's saying, but we're the genteel ones. So there's on some level like this fear that you'd be confirming you're worth less than other people or that it's embarrassing. I commend it so much that you, you would write an article about that. And then I want to kind of go through why it's not unique you'd be in that situation. Well, uh, before we do that part, I will say this, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I actually, it's a movie I will watch whenever it's on. This is my political eight mile rule. Uh, from the movie Eight Mile, when Rabbit, in the last rap battle, this line where he says, you know, now, what are you going to tell them? I know everything you got to say about me. Like, there's this moment in politics where you have this pretense that the darkest part of your life will never find light, that people will never know. And it goads you into bad behavior because you're so busy trying to hide that you've forgotten why it is. And it was my debt, but I talked about my younger brother who has grappled with drug addiction and incarceration and mental illness issues. And part of it for me was, I'm not gonna let you weaponize him against me. I'm not going to let you embarrass and humiliate him and treat his struggle and his triumph and his relapses, his stumbles. I'm not going to let you turn that into fodder. And so I got his permission before I even ran. I was like, look, this is gonna come up. If this is going to hurt you, I will find something, some other way to do the things I want to do. But how do you feel about me telling your story? And he gave me permission. And the same thing was true about the money. It wasn't about just me. I was, I was going to have to reveal my parents' stories. I'm like, are you okay if I have to do this? And I went through all of my siblings. I'm like, I can't do this authentically. I can't do this effectively if I'm going to hide the parts that make me good at why I should do this. I'm a good politician because I've been poor and I know what it feels like. I am a good politician who writes good policies because I understand what it means to worry about whether you can get a job once you've gotten out of prison and whether you have access to mental health care when you can't get Medicaid. These are things that we have to be able to talk about, but I can't talk about it if I refuse to admit that I know something about it. Finance is so intrinsically linked to status, particularly in this country. Yes. And so 
it's just courage to go like, yes, this has been a conventional way to further demote my status in the society, but I'm going to take that away from you and I'm going to tell you about it and I'm going to explain why it is this way. And one of the things in the thing you wrote, which is horrific, which is in 2016, women, they're at 80 percent of what their male counterparts are making as, as the, the gender gap. And then further to that, if you're a black woman, it's going to be 40%. If you're a Latina, it's going to be 50%. And so I just want any person who's been listening to you speak could ever construct an argument that you might deserve 60% of what I earn is ghastly. It's insane. And then you further break down the fact that, yes, you're going to be someone who took on way more college debt than your average person. Mm -hmm. You're also going to be someone who is going to send money back immediately to your family. I count myself lucky enough to be in that group too, <laughs> by the way. There's going to be nine yeah. other elements involved in this thing. And fuck all y'all for thinking that speaks <laughs> poorly to me as a human. I mean, look, you know this. When you start to make anything, it's not that I made money, it's we made money. The first time you got a big paycheck, you didn't get that check. Y'all got that check. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, mean, yes. I know you don't use y'all in Detroit, but... <laughs> no, I, I, do. I use y'all because it's a perfect catch-all. Yeah, there are all these obligations that come with success, and we have this bifurcated notion that it's before success and after. I'm like, no, it is a journey, and it is a journey where there are detours, there are car crashes. It is a terrible ride, and... Part of my responsibility, and I appreciate you attributing it to courage, but you can't fix problems you can't talk about. And it's hard to fix problems you don't understand. And so if you want someone who can help you, I tend to look for someone who understands my problem, not because they it's academic, but because it's real. And I decided Forbes is a good place to talk about it because people with money should know about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. You don't need to write that in the LA Weekly. Those yeah, folks already right. are hip to what you're yeah. going through. I don't want to make too definitive of a statement, but I will say shame is a power you give to people. Yeah, exactly. And once you declare this doesn't give me shame, the people that want to shame you, they have no ammo anymore. And that can be in your the thing you wrote about your finances. That can be me going, yeah, I'm a fucking addict. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I'm a scumbag. Guess what? It's over. When I hear you say, oh, yeah, this isn't going to shame me, that's how you divorce yourself from it. And I just hope that transcends every conversation, which is like we're coming out of the shame shadow and talking about it. Yeah. I like you. Well, thank you. I like you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. That is a high compliment. Because I've heard what you said about people you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> the group is getting smaller and smaller as I evolve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's all my issues. <laughs> I hate rich people. We're working on that. Yeah. So I hope everyone gets Stacy's extraordinary words. And I particularly hope anyone who's got a daughter gets it. And I further hope anyone who's got any kid that might feel like there's any reason that they would feel less than would get this book and latch on to the main theme of like, yeah, find your superpower and nurture it and relish in it and define yourself by it. What were you going to say, Monica? No, I just want to, one last thing, because she'll kill me if I don't, but my aunt who lives in Georgia, she really rallied around what you were doing and you, and I know so many people who are in that same boat and you gave a lot of people purpose and like a path and it's really special and people, I think, gained so much from it that you'll never know. So on her behalf and all of our behalf, thank you. Thank you. Well, please give her my, what's her, what's her name? Sharmila. Sharmila, please give her my best and tell her thank you. I will.
Well, Stacey, you write a book every couple months, so I'm <laughs> assuming you'll be back. Yeah, I come hope, back. I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll let me. Yeah, I would love that. And I would love, I mean, I'm vibing you. I want to have like a coffee if I'm in Atlanta. I don't want to go too far, but just know <laughs> I dig what you're doing. So thanks for giving us your time. Thank you, guys. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Let me start by this. How was your trip home? Trip home was good. I got to go to Athens. I got to go to my favorite restaurant there, Last Resort. Shout out Last Resort. Bought a t-shirt. Bought Callie a t-shirt. But they didn't have the dessert you were you were desiring. Is that the yeah. case? Yeah, this is one of these stories I love. This is a, a sad story. But yeah, so don't leave out any details because this is the exact kind of story, you know, I, I love of yours. So the whole goal <laughs> was to get this strawberry cake, which is my favorite strawberry cake. It's from Cecilia's Bakery in Athens. It's the best cake in the whole world. Very, very wet cake. Oh, it's a Moise cake. Very. And yeah. um, and it's just a, it's a delicious restaurant. Whole family went. We were going to go a little early because I wanted to go to the bookstore. Can I pause you for just half a second? Mm-hmm. So often our favorite restaurants from when we were younger, you know, we've now moved to L.A. and we've been spoiled and we've got to eat at some pretty nice restaurants. And then you go home and sometimes you go to your old favorite restaurant and you realize, oh, I think a lot of this stuff is microwaved. Exactly. That's always the fear. <laughs> yeah. Is, was that the case? No. It's a okay, really, great. really good restaurant. Hold on one second. Okay. Yeah. Take your time. You're really wound up. For the um, listeners who can't see you, you, you have a lot of cables around you, and you seem to be um, almost like someone broke into your house and maybe roped you up. I haven't cleaned in a bit. <laughs> Pretty wrecked. <laughs> So anyway, so I really yeah. wanted to go to the bookstore because I thought there was going to be some cool new shirts for the game, the big game, the national championship game. Right, which I'm super embarrassed to admit, but I noticed from one of your posts, they must have either gone really far or is it already over? Are they in the playoffs? Did they win? What happened? It was Monday was the national championship. They played Bama and they won. No. Yeah, it was a really big deal. Huge. Wait, deal. while while you were there or since you were home? I ended up coming home a little early. So you weren't there for the big win. So I wasn't, but it was so exciting and so exciting to see. Like my friends chat from home. We're on a WhatsApp chat and like, Everyone is just like doing play-by-play, sending all these pictures, and it was it was really fun for us. How many times have the dogs won the national championship? N- never or once. Okay, because I didn't want to be mean, but I just I I don't really associate um, the dogs with being like you know Notre Dame or something. No, and they are always good, but they always choke. They're chokers. Okay. Oh, um, well, we like that. The last time we played was in, I lived here, maybe it was 2018. They went to the national championship and also against Bama and lost, choked. Oops. And Callie and I had gone to a bar (laughs) to watch it and it was too crowded and stinky. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you know what? I think E from Entourage, I'm pretty sure he owned that bar anyway. So that's a fun piece of info. 
Which one's E? Oh, oh, you went to Fat Slims? No, it wasn't Fat Slims. It was called like uh, Goalies or something like that. Oh, okay. Because one of the entourage fellas owns that like sandwich shop at the corner of Highland and Fountain called like Fatso's or Fat Slim or oh god, Fatty Fatty Two by Four. That's a bad name. Well, I didn't name the restaurant. I'm just saying. That okay. There's- do you know what I'm talking about? I do. We, you and I ordered from there one time, and they put like French fries on the, the sandwiches, oh. and other other sandwiches are in the sandwich. I was not there for that, <laughs> but I do remember you guys talking about it. Maybe it's E. Maybe E owns a lot of uh, establishments. Yeah. Yeah. Anywho, flash forward. I wanted to go because I figured there'd be some sort of great T-shirt. Yeah commemorating the upcoming event. Then my dad was lost and, you know, it was a whole, oh. it was a whole to do. Uh-huh. He was like, I'm not coming in. And we were like, you can't drive around. You don't know where you're going. <laughs> Luckily, my brother was there and he was, we shared a headspace, which was good. And then, um. Well, you and your brother are bonding more. So it's kind yeah. of fun to team up on poor old show. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, my mom got mad at us a few times for us laughing at her. Oh. Wait, what? at her or your dad? At her. Oh, no. Why were we laughing at Nirmala? She did some silly stuff. Okay, embarrassing stuff? Yeah. <laughs> can, can you tell us any of the things or would it be too embarrassing for I her? I mean, it wasn't even... Like, she was just, like, rambling on a story and, like, wouldn't stop, wouldn't stop. And then my brother uh. and I kind of looked at each other and then we laughed and then... She was, she said we were nuts and then, you know, you know how it goes. Sure. Um, Can I ask another quick question? Because again, I don't want to be spared a single detail of this. I know how you feel about farting in public. It's not your thing. Um, No. So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, in my family growing up, if we took a long car ride together, everyone's just farting up a storm and it smelled and no one, you know, that was just my family. And, And I have a hunch that's not your family. No. I didn't smell any farts on the ride there or back. Not even your dad, because the patriarch—that's what—that's what, that's what the, the dad earns. No, actually, he's—he would be the least to do it. Yeah, that's why we love him. I guess also it's in, modeling. In simula- well, I bet in his simulation, he checked the box like no gas. Why not? I don't want gas. He doesn't have it. I've never smelt a fart of his in my whole life. Yeah, and saying I can say the same about you, so I think they checked that box. But I smell my mom's farts. She'll be mad at me that I said that, but uh, I have. Okay. Mom farts smell very specific. <laughs> I think everyone can relate. You know, because sometimes we'll be laying in bed at night, and and there's a there's a there's an aroma in the air, and, and generally the girls will immediately go like, if it's mom, they know it's mom. They'll say sure. mom. You know, yeah. I think mine's. Generally smells roughly like a, a porterhouse, you know, like thick. <laughs> well, yeah, just like um, wholesome and robust, I guess maybe. Yeah. Anyway, Anywho. mom farts. Okay. <laughs> anyway, great name for a podcast, by the way. <laughs> great name. So, <laughs> so we we did park and we did go into the bookstore, <laughs> and there were a couple shirts left. Uh, they aren't designed all that well, but I still got. One and then we went to dinner. It was lovely. It was delicious. I had a red pepper and feta parm soup for oh, an wow. app. Oh, it wow. was so good. And then I had short ribs. Oh, 
So it is a really nice restaurant. Yeah. They're, they're, they're offering short ribs. Yeah. It's really, how, really good. How were you eating there in college? I only like once or twice for a special occasion. Oh, like, like it, a homecoming type thing. Yeah. That's high nah, school. But you yeah, know what I mean. Yeah. For special <laughs> occasions. But, you know, money there's different. It's much cheaper. But it's still, yeah, it still would have been a lot for us at the time. But we didn't go very much. Anyway, okay. whole point is this cake. That's that's the purpose of the trip. It's very important. It's a strawberry cake. The first thing I did when I sat down is I said, hey, can you set a slice of the strawberry cake aside? Because I'm- Yeah, you're already it. panicked. It might run out while you're there. Yeah. And he yep. said, oh, I don't think we have that cake in today. And oh. I, my jaw just dropped with oh. sadness. Oh my God. And let's just tell people like you've driven to Athens. How far is that from? It's Duluth? an hour. It? Yeah, that, that's a that's a hike. It's an hour. And the whole hour, you're just thinking about nibbling on that that wet as the hell. The whole cake. time, I was yeah. so excited, and I was trying to figure out like, then do I get a couple, bring some back? Maybe I'll try to bring some back to LA. I don't even know. Right, freeze it maybe. Real game plan. Ding ding yeah. ding. Game. Use it as a facial. Who knows? The options are endless. I just kind of stared at him and he was like, well, I can check. I can double check in the back. And I was like, okay, I hope you have it. And then he returned and said they didn't have it. They, and, but, oh. but, but they have others. And then he's like, you know, listing bunch. And he's like, the Trace Leches cake has strawberries on it. And I was like, ugh, mm. that's not what I want. Yeah. That's not right. what I want. I want a bucket of strawberry water in my mouth in the yeah. form of a cake. He read the list. Lots of good sounding cakes, but they were all making me angry, you know, hearing more and yeah. more and not strawberry. <laughs> yeah, they have so many. <laughs> so many. <laughs> then he circled back to Tres Leches and I was like, okay, fine. He really wants me to have this Tres Leches. So we ordered a slice of that and a slice of the chocolate. And the Tres Leches was so good. Oh, oh. It was a big twist. Oh, I'll say. I feel like I'm watching Sixth Sense right now. It was a huge pop-out, huge reveal. No one saw it coming. And in fact, I was kind of like, this is what the strawberry cake tastes like. Like, it's the same. I never thought anything could replace a strawberry cake, but it did. It sounds to me like you had a case of clear Pepsi. What's that mean? Well, you know, like if you want a Pepsi, you want a Pepsi. And then they came out with clear Pepsi. Do you remember that? No, no. You don't remember clear Pepsi? No. Okay, so Monica, they came out with clear Pepsi. Like, look how exciting this is. But it tastes the same. It's Pepsi. And everyone was like, absolutely fucking not. Oh, they weren't happy about it. Oh, it was a disaster. No one oh. wanted clear Pepsi. They just like the brown Pepsi. That's right. So you were like eating this thing that it sounds like was the exact same thing, but it's in a different, you know, shape. And you're like, this is clear Pepsi. I just want the brown Pepsi. We shouldn't even be talking about Pepsi. I realize that because the story is in Atlanta, but you know what I'm saying. I know. It's kind of bad luck what you just did, but that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. I can't believe you don't remember clear Pepsi because I want to say Saturday Night Live had a, a real good time with it. I think they like had a few fake commercials where it was like clear gravy like, all these things you would not want to oh, be clear. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like, think how remember. bad, uh, like, a clear grilled cheese sandwich Ew. would be. <laughs> or, like, oh, clear pizza, and it just tasted exactly <laughs> like much, pizza. Do I want anything to be clear that's food? No, just Noxzema. No, vapor rub. 
Vicks Vapor yeah. Rub. Vicks Vapor Rub, Medicinal, Liberal Arts Education. Hellenic Studies. Can I ask, was the leche actually as good as the one you wanted? It was. And oh I was God. shocked. I was oh shocked my to my core. It kind of changed the way I looked at life. I was just going to say, this is a, it's a universal lesson. Yeah, you think it's one in a million, but it's not. And I also think for you and I, who have, we come by this honestly through different means. When you find something that you know makes you feel good and safe, it gets, for me Mm -hmm. at least, it gets put in a vault of like most important things in my life. I know when I have this thing, I'm going to feel good. And it takes on a value that's much bigger than moist cake. Exactly. And also the Trace Leches cake was also so wet. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. It was just sprayed. It was crazy. It was crazy. (laughs) I was like, this is the new best cake I've ever eaten. I also had to just say, like, it's kind of the bakery. The bakery is just incredible. Still best bakery in the world, in my opinion. Okay, but the story is not over. So I was so satisfied and so happy. But then the next day I was like, you know what? I'm going to order that cake and I'm going to go pick it up. Because a different bakery is making it and giving it to the restaurant. Exactly. There we go. So I ordered a strawberry cake. Oh! And I drove to Athens in the morning and picked (laughs) it up. I bought two, actually. (laughs) And then I drove it back and I had a slice of it and it was incredible as usual. But I didn't think like, oh yeah, this is this is so much better than the Trace Leche. So I was like, oh yeah, this is that, and I love that. Yeah. But you know, you know, it's just good to know. There's always a Trace Leche's cake around the corner. There is. Okay, now I want to tell you a couple stories. One made me think of it, which is you said money is different there as it is. So when Eric and Aaron and I checked into this hotel in Playa del Carmen which was a really, really nice hotel. So I, I, I think I was open to the notion that things were going to be way too expensive. Mm-hmm. We, while we were waiting for our room, we had three Diet Cokes. And then when I signed the bill, it was $300. What? And I thought, oh, oh boy, these Diet Cokes oh are- Oh my God. Are $100 a piece or whatever. I'm sure you can guess where this is going. It was in pesos and it's it's the the conversion rate was like times 20. So wow. it was really only it was only 15 bucks. But That's still there kind was of a, a lot. But at a resort, five dollars for a Diet Coke delivered, like it's not out of the realm of Yeah. 300 would have been really <laughs> odd, like you would have had to come home. That, what would you have been able to do? Exactly. We would have just been like we're not playing this game. So, but that wasn't the case at all. Okay, and then the second funny thing I want to tell you about Mexico was I didn't know this, and maybe you did, but Russians, their holiday, like our Christmas break and all that mm-hmm. into New Year's, theirs apparently is January 1 through the 7th. Okay. That's when all the Russians have their time off. So. The resort was 100% Russian, and then Eric and Aaron and I, which isn't the easiest thing to know immediately because they're Russian. They just look like American tourists to me, right? Yeah. Not unlike the situation I put you and I in in England where I told that guy he had beautiful eyes. Oh, no. Oh, this one's worse. Oh, no. Yeah, so 
<laughs> this is because this is the first night, and and we haven't figured out where the gym is yet. And the place is on six hundred and twenty acres, so there's like you know you got to get a golf cart everywhere, ride bicycles. So we're like we're trying to figure out where the gym is so we can get to it. And lo and behold, right next to us at the table was this attractive couple. The man was conservatively two hundred and seventy pounds of muscle, shaved head. His wife or girlfriend looked like a Euro model. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, that motherfucker knows where the gym is, right? Context clues. <laughs> right. And, and again, I, I haven't learned the thing that everyone there is Russian. We, we haven't learned that yet. And so I kind of try to get their attention as they're leaving the table, but they don't hear me or whatever. Well, what it is is there's a language barrier that I'm unaware of. So I then get up. And I walk over to them and I said, hey, excuse me. I know you know where the gym is. And I, I slap the guy on the <gasps> shoulder. He, uh -oh. you know, he's, he's enormous, but he does not speak English, I come to find out. And I'm just a dude who's grabbing him. And his Russian girlfriend or bride in very broken English said, oh, he is not working out on vacation time. And I was like, oh, so, oh. And, okay. And, and then... <laughs> <laughs> and he's just staring at me like, get your fucking hand off me or I'm going to punch you into the water. Oh, my God. And Eric and Aaron are watching this entire exchange, and it just, you know, it just went terribly, and it really did look like the guy for a minute was just going to knock me up my ass. Oh, wow. But then we figured out everyone was Russian, and that became its own interesting thing. Yeah, that was unique. I've never, ever taken a vacation with 100% Russians. That's a novel and proprietary experience for sure. Incredibly, incredibly rare. I can always tell, and this is based on having lived in Santa Monica for 10 years. Germans love Santa Monica in August. Germans cannot stay away from Santa Monica in August. Really? Yeah, so if you go to the promenade in Santa Monica in August, it's virtually all German. And I was so used to that over 10 years. And I can really pinpoint the way they dress. There's just, there's just like these little clues that they're German. You know, they don't wear sneakers. There's all these little mm. things. But I got really good at, like, recognizing German tourists. And, you know, the Russian tourists, they, they too had a look that we, we eventually kind of really cobbled together and everything. So it was pretty fun. Yeah, I was going to ask, what did you, like, learn about the culture? They don't, like, wear their ties backwards and stuff? They wear their ties backwards. Okay, I had heard that. Yeah, and they wear their shoes on their hands. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. All that's obvious, but yeah. Which is why they can only eat pizza. Sure. Right. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, you start to see these little signs. My brother just texted me, ding, ding, ding. He's in Russia? Well, no, I just be talking about my brother. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he got his shoes. I ordered him some shoes. For, you did? For Christmas that he picked out dunks. He's not a Jordans guy, he said. Um, that's, why? I know, he, he's just not, and that's okay. He's him. He picked out dunks that are really cool, and they came. I'm so happy. Also, he started his real big boy job. He's a big boy now. Well, okay, that's the other update I want because you've really kind of been starting to bond with your brother a lot, which I— I love, and mm -hmm. so I just was wondering if on this trip there was even more of that. Well, yeah, the laughing at my mom's farts. Um, yeah. <laughs> and not her farts, but just laughing at her. And then, uh, and then, yeah, he's about to start his jobs. We were, you know, talked about that and that and the shoes. You know, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Pretty much yeah, yeah, covered yeah. it. 
But yeah, it's yeah. nice. You got me the coolest Jordans on planet Earth for Christmas. People should know. Well, yeah, but they didn't. They haven't come. Doesn't matter. You still did. <laughs> I'm no- actually nervous because something went really wrong. There's two charges for them. Uh oh. On my credit card, and I Uh-oh. also have zero shoes, so I don't know what's going on. But I'm Uh-oh. figuring it out with the BM, the bowel movement. The Better Business Bureau. <laughs> yes, I had the thought to purchase you some really cool shoes recommended by Hassan. Who's the shoe god? He is the shoe god. I don't want to toss shade or whatever it is that you call it. The kids call yeah. it. Yeah. But, you know, Kristen and I both I had this idea. Not, we were both not smart enough to talk to each other about it. And <laughs> Hassan sent us the same list of shoes, and her and I got you the same pair. You, you might have you, three pairs at the end of this. I don't know. Okay. Well, but I think you thought I was just trying to comfort you, but I was not. There's nothing I want more than two pairs of those shoes. Yeah. Like, they're not going to make those again, and I'm going to want to wear them for the rest of my life, and I, I'm going to wear a pair out. Like, I'm thrilled to have a backup pair. They're fucking gorgeous. They're really cool shoes. I got you a pair of shoes, too. You did. They're, they're not gorgeous. As exciting. Yeah. No, yeah, they are. They're pink. No, the ones I you got me pink. are much more exclusive, much nicer, more expensive, higher end, more exclusive, fancier. Limited. Um, master, master's degree. <laughs> no, they didn't have those in girls. My kind? Yeah. But there's no girls or boys. But no, I mean, they didn't have small size. Oh, your size. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, okay. It's really fun to go on GOAT or whatever one you use and, and make your filter most expensive to least. There are many, many pairs of Jordans that are $90,000. I can't believe it. <laughs> I cannot believe it. It, it's, but it's really weird because I'll think, oh, my God, they're all worth that. But then I'll go into it and I'll realize it's actually like certain sizes are that. Like 13 and a half Jordans, you might be sitting on a million dollars. Really? <laughs> well, not a million, but but for whatever reason, that seems to be the size that gets crazy expensive. That's weird. I wonder why because of how many people wear a 13 and a half? Well, what I th- I have to imagine is that Nike, if they're smart, they know exactly what percentage of the marketplace wears a seven and eight and nine and ten, and then they probably make them accordingly. And there's pro- they probably only make a couple hundred thirteen and a halves if they're doing a limited run of Jordans. Yeah. They're not going to make the same amount of 13 and a halves as they're going to make 10s. Yeah, you're right. But then with that logic, same should be for me because I'm a five. I know, you're a tiny five little, women's. L- little baby. Yeah, which is like a, a zero a men's. four boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I should be sitting on some dough too. Let's hope. So this was Stacy Abrams. I loved her so much. Now, she was a person that you and Kristen have been obsessed with for a few years, and I've had kind of little knowledge of. And I almost think I do this really gross thing, which is like if other people know a lot about something and I don't, I'll just decide I'm not going to know about it. Mm. Like, I can't catch up to these two. Like, they love this person, and I'm just going to bail out. And, I mean, boy, did I love her. It is like, no wonder you guys are obsessed with her. She is a bad motherfucker. 
such a special person, has made so much actual change in the country vis-a-vis the world, I guess. Like, it's so rare to be able to pinpoint change like that to one human. And yeah. she did it. It's, um, oh, I love her. This is a dangerous compliment for me to attempt to give. I don't know if I'll be able to pull it off, but as we have found interviewing women so often, there's a tendency to kind of maybe negate what you just said or, you know, there's just all these cultural things that women Fall into some bad traps that we've been told we have to do. Yeah, saddled with. Like, if if you're really smart, you got to downplay. So you'll be like, yeah, it's 357,000 cubic inches. I think... Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, I think you were the one that pointed it out originally, and then I started becoming aware of it. And I just was so aware when I was talking to her, like, this is a woman who knows exactly who she is, and she knows her value. I just loved it. I agree. I, she's very clear. The people that walk the walk have a different vibe. I agree. I agree. And she's, since we recorded this, that should be known, because we recorded it a while ago, I'm sure people know that she's running for governor of Georgia. Oh, she um, is. Mm-hmm. So that's happening. She posted about the dogs. I was just going to say, big year for Georgia. Yeah. National championship. Okay, I have a question you won't want to answer. All right. Did you get recognized in Athens? Once, yes. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. The little girl that went to University of Georgia. It was the girl selling me the T-shirt at last resort. It had been better if the person who didn't give you the cake knew, because maybe they would have driven over to that. Uh... I agree. <laughs> yeah. I agree. And really, there's not really any facts, of course, because as you said, as you pointed out, she's so factual. But I did want to just call out her organization just as like a double. Double call? hit. It's called Fair Fight. The national F-A-I-R. Vo- uh-huh. F-A-I-R fight.com. National voting rights organization rooted in Georgia. If you want to check it out, go to fairfight.com. If you don't like fair fights, you know, uh, you're a jerk, you know. You can get your own URL, unfairfight.com. <laughs> right. <Call> unfair fights. <laughs> 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 That would be an interesting website. Be like um, grizzly bear fighting like a, you know, a raccoon or something. Oh, yeah. I think I would like that because I bet sometimes, you know, the underdog will win. Ding, 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 Georgia. Yes. Bulldogs. Go dogs. Go dogs. Sick them. <laughs> oh, my God. There's how many sayings are there? Sick them? Say go dogs. Sick them. <laughs> That's what you do. That's what you do. Had to. We do. We do it one more time. Nope, that's the only time oh! you're ever gonna hear me. Do it. <laughs> it's not the only time you're gonna hear me do it. So oh, I go. Go. No. All right. So I go. All right. Let me give it a shot. You ready? Okay. Okay. Go, dog. Sick them. <laughs> that's pretty good. The, it, the um go is much longer. Yeah, I didn't have the the cadence. Cadence, right, for sure. yeah. They teach you this at orientation there. They teach it to you. Well, they should. There's class there's a class on it. You th- there's a Go Dogs 101. I mean, that's a liberal arts education. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Go um, dogs! Sick 'em! <laughs> that's better. 
That's better. Okay. Sikkim okay. was a little too long, but okay. I just, I think that that's as far as we're going to get for today. Maybe we'll try it again next time. Okay, can I tell you one joke that I made? I think I've already told you this, but this very rare thing happened. It'll never happen again in my lifetime. Bree and I went to a UCLA Bruin game when I was a student there. We sat in that student section. You know the whole story. We had, we had like smuggled all this alcohol in because we were both dirt bags and we realized none of, none of the other students at UCLA drink at those games. Really? That's a side note. That is weird. Yes, I know. Because in Michigan, man, the, the whole point is just to get fucking oh, hammered yeah. in the parking lot. Yeah. Before you get in, you're already hammered. And then normally you bring a flask or something. That's right. And so none of that was happening except for Breen. I had about a case of beer on us and a fifth of whiskey. But at any rate, it, uh, it was against Fresno. And, um, and mind you, I actually have a high opinion of Fresno. But in this moment, they were the opponents, right? Sure. And so I don't know how this happened, but it just so happened. You know, every now and again, it'll get really quiet at an event. And I think the Rose Bowl is like 90,000 people. But but somehow it got so quiet the moment I screamed, I tell you to go to hell, but you're already from Fresno. <laughs> and I promise you at least 15,000 people heard that. And there was an enormous round of laughter. It, it just, it, I, and nothing's ever timed out so perfect in my life. Oh my God. And it kind of saved the whole day for us because we were bummed no, no one was partying with us. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you got really into the game, I guess, if you were shouting that kind of stuff out. Well, no, I didn't even know what I was watching. I just was trying to insult the opponents. I figured I could do that. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> and, and truth be told, I have been yelling many, many things about Fresno. It just, ha it just so happened that there was this crazy silence right when I did that. Sim. It was wild, yeah. That's funny. Oh, man. <laughs> if you're at that game, mm -hmm. I love Fresno, and I don't feel that way at all about Fresno. No, we love Fresno. Great place to raise a family and start a business and get going on that liberal arts education. <laughs> um, that's it, because that's all the fackies. That's everything. That's everything. Have you thought about any new goals this year for the podcast? Mm. Um, other than, like, declared goals, like m more shows, mm -hmm, there's mm -hmm. a show we have in the works that I think is going to be really, really, uh, two shows that I think are going to be really, really, really cool. One of them, I think, already has the ability for a second season. Wait, Monica and Jess? No, Monica and Jess is happening. Yeah. We yeah. made that very clear. I think we're going to look into uh, applications this week. Great. So I think that'll all be really fun. I think there's going to be a lot of, yeah. lot of stuff to do this year, which will be good. Do you have any? Goals for the show? I, I do. I'd like to figure out how to occasionally interact with people. Because when mm. I did Chelsea's show, Chelsea Handler's podcast, yeah, I really, really loved interacting with the people who listen to her show. And I would really love to interact with the people that listen to our show. So I, we tried it once. And I don't, for whatever reason, technically, we didn't do a good job. But I'd like to do that. Yeah, I like that. I, I really want to do a series somehow about homelessness in L.A. I haven't figured out my exact approach to that, but I certainly 
want to do that very badly. I like that a lot. I don't know. I just want to get better. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Well. I love you. Love you. Love you.